When I started, no one, not even MPO, made actual money. There's more money even for mid to lower level professionals to be able to tour and focus on disc golf. We are focusing on FPO coverage in the same way that we are for MPO. And if you're like a little girl watching, and you're like, wow, look at the women do stuff. We're having people start younger and younger. The coverage has, I think, generated interest. We're seeing more women convert from like ultimate Frisbee. So there's just so many factors that are just creating more opportunities and visibility for women in disc golf. Growing FPO fields have brought more competitors to disc golf's biggest stage, with more unique winners and podium finishers than ever before. This week on the Stat Line, we sit down with Erica Stinchcomb to talk about parody in the time of Tatar, here on the Statmando Podcast Network. Welcome into the Stat Line. It is officially 2024. I'm Steve here with Emily. Emily, do you set New Year's resolutions and do you set any disc golf resolutions each year? That's a good question. So I actually subscribe to the CGP Gray method of having themes for my year instead. Often people complain about the problem with resolutions is there are fixed goals where if you fall off, then you sort of have no incentive to do anything that still would be kind of progressing towards that goal. So the theme is kind of a way around that. But yeah, my theme this year is consistency. And one of those things is definitely related to taking some of my practice elements a little bit more seriously, but also taking my strength training from a perspective of injury prevention for disc golf uh, pretty seriously as well. So so far, I'm off to a good start, so let's keep it rolling, I guess. Great. Well, and we're going to see you out on tour for a little bit as well. You have a partial tour card for this season. Have Have you mapped out your events yet this year? Yeah, I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do uh, for events, so I have already picked some of them with the partial tour card, although I can change that up until the time that registration opens for the tiered system that the DGPT will be using. But I plan to do some pretty good chunks of the tour. We bought a van, gonna make my cats love life on the road. So yeah, (laughs) I'm looking forward to this year. Great. Well, we've spent the last two episodes talking about Kristen Tatar, and now we're going to talk about the rest of the field. We're in this era where we have one player who seemingly can't lose at times, and then a a whole host of players in the field that are vying for wins every single week. And part of that is is the growing field size, and including yourself getting out there and competing. So let's just dive right in starting with just some final stats about Kristen <laughs> and and how her win percentages look compared to some other seasons. For for all the dominance that she had, her win percentage on the year actually came out to 64%. And that's actually like ninth best of all time. It's behind some of the seasons that we talked about previously, like Jenkins in 08, Des Redding in 07. They had higher than 80% in those years. And Paige Pierce was above 70% in both 2017 and 2020. So 64%, I mean, obviously top 10 is still pretty awesome. But one leading player, you know, has been the norm in the FBO division. 
And in each of the last 10 seasons, we've had one player with at least a 40% win rate and eight of the last 10 have seen someone with a 50% or higher win rate. So this is kind of what we're used to seeing. And then meanwhile, we had nine unique winners when we look at elite majors and, and throw pink. That's the most of any season. 22 unique podium finishers and 36 different players who made the lead card all the most of any season. So why are fields getting stronger? Why is the depth of the field growing? I had the opportunity to sit down with Josh Mansfield of the Upshot, and he had an interesting take on it. So we will play that for you now. It's not a coincidence that as payouts in the FPU division continue to climb to reach a closer level of parity with their male counterparts, that the number of successful and dominant women go up as well. For so long, people would say that you know FPO just had players at the top who were just different and were excelled at a level and it's just not as deep of a field but i think that's a direct reflection of our failure to invest in previous seasons in the FPO division so emily what's your take on josh's stance there on the increase in FPO fields i think he makes a great point I don't think it's too hard to understand the link between more money equals more players out there. So when you can take home a little bit more cash from all of those events, your incentive to actually drop your full-time job, hit the road, devote your career to playing disc golf is going to be much higher because it's actually going to be feasible for you to do that, you know, in combination with a sponsorship. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I know often the issue that we run up against is some some players on the uh, MPO side <laughs> will complain about the money that's getting funneled towards the FPO side because, you know, the field is smaller, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's important to remember the concepts of, you know, equity versus equality. So we need equity right now because the women's field has never been given the same opportunities to grow the way that the men's field has. They've always been the the field that's been supported financially and from the sponsors and all of that. So, you know, the reason that we need to skew some of that money towards the FPO side is just to try to give it a chance to catch up. And then, you know, once we're there, we can think about, you know, what is equality really going to look like for these two fields? But we certainly need to be investing on that equity side right now, just to increase the depth, increase the competition and increase the skill sets of the players that are devoting their careers to playing this game. 100% agree with that. And it it's not Again, not surprising that when we saw this huge bump in players, it happened at the exact time that we saw a huge increase in, in payouts through the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Going back to the start of the National Tour in 2003 through 2019, FPO payouts increased on average by only 5% per year when you account for the slow and steady increase in field size. So it wasn't until 2020 that we saw a massive 74% jump in payouts and an almost 20% increase the year after that. So seeing the increase in payouts directly followed by a massive increase in players and um, competition, this correlation uh, looks like it may be uh, part of the causation there. 
Yeah, absolutely. When we look back, the PDGA paid out over a million dollars to FBO competitors for the first time in 2022. And this year it was $1.6 million. And almost 1 million of that is going to the touring pros at Majors, Elite, Silver, and Throw Pink. So Again, these are the professionals that we expect to be out there dedicating their careers to the sport. And we're finally starting to see that the quantity of money going out to them is is going to enable them to do that. And a, a quick look at field size. So again, starting in 2003, there was an average of only 12 FPO competitors in the field on the elite stage for the first three years. They didn't break 20 players on average until 2015. Um, It took six more years to break 30 in 2021. And then in 2022, the average field size got over 40. So a rapid growth in field size, which we love to see because with more players, you get more great players and the payouts are are supporting them to be able to, to live out on the road throughout the year. We're going to kick it now to an interview with the one and only Erica Stinchcomb, and we'll talk about parody payouts and more. All right. Hi, Erica. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you here. We think your viewpoint as both a commentator and a player is going to be really valuable for this discussion. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks. I'm excited. So you started touring in 2017, and that was the year that Paige Pierce racked up 13 wins on tour, which is the most of any season. So from your standpoint, do you think that what we're seeing from Kristen is the same or different from what we've seen from Paige before when she's been dominant? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question just because like if you look at the the history of the sport and how I mean I've basically been you know, on tour full time for three years, but trying to tour since 2017, like part time, right? And you look at 2017 and there was a lot more people scrounging around <laughs> trying to make enough money to tour. The contracts were smaller. You were lucky to get like 20, maybe 25 women playing. So I would argue, even though Paige was completely dominant in 2017, I think she won half of the events that she played. I would argue that Kristen's season this year is more impressive simply because the field is bigger. More people are able to focus on disc golf full time instead of maybe that side hustle. It's more of like a legitimized real sport now. And not to say that it wasn't before, but it's just different. And largely when Paige won in 2017, she mostly just had to beat Katrina Allen. And now we're seeing more unique winners than ever in FBO. Uh, and that means that Kristen is having to beat more people who are playing consistently better. You mentioned the ability to get larger sponsorships and larger payouts. How much do you think that payouts themselves which we've seen just take off in the last couple of years, have led to growth in the FPO field? I honestly credit the Pro Tour so much with the growth of the FPO field because not only are payouts bigger, but they've been paying FPO 50% for years now. I'm trying to remember when they started doing that. But basically, you know, instead of paying just 40, they're paying an extra 10%. And like I said, when I started, that extra 10% might be a tank of gas or... <laughs> sleeping inside maybe for a night or you know what I mean like tour when people say it's a grind I mean 
it is, but it, it used to be even harder than it is now. There's just more money available now for everybody. So there's a huge disparity off, obviously, from the top making millions to the bottom, maybe making 10,000, maybe 20,000. Uh, but anyway, back then, <laughs> it sounds like I'm so old when I say this, but it was not that long ago. Like we're talking about eight <laughs> years ago. The, pay, in, the increase in payout is um, definitely a large reason why the field as a whole has grown, why we have more mid-level professionals. Like maybe you're not seeing them win, but we're filling out the field and everybody's improving. And there are just more people able to, to win and start taking home that bigger prize money. Uh, and the Pro Tour, again, matches the Disc Golf Pro Tour Championship payout for the MPO, which is just unprecedented. And year after year, they bumped that up. You know, it was 20, 25, 30. What are they at, 35 now? Which is just kind of a life-changing amount of money for a lot of people in this sport. So to, in a long way to answer your question, <laughs> um, the increase in payouts has, is just, I think, one but very large part of why we're seeing such a huge growth in FBO. The U.S. Open in tennis celebrated 50 years of equal pay um, between the, the men and the women. So it, it's just really cool to see the, the Pro Tour Championship and then other select events like Des Moines Challenge this year adding extra money to the purse to equal the the payout for the winner in, in that case. So the growth in, in the payouts definitely supports the tour, and, and we, we love to see that. I think tennis is absolutely the model that we should follow as well. There's plenty of other sports that do not do equal pay, but if you look at tennis, the women have just as many fans and generate just as much revenue, and they've proven that it works. And I definitely am a fan of the Pro Tour pushing that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I also think it's a really good case for where the the game is the same but different across the two in, in a way yes. that's like more direct to see as a, as a spectator, like as a viewer too, you know, whereas some of the rule changes that we see sometimes like say WNBA versus NBA, I think we lose people when we have those kinds of adjustments. Whereas you look at tennis, you look at disc golf and it's the same, but they're playing their own games. So we can appreciate mm -hmm. that, but there's no translation needed. Great point. I love that you're talking about how that extra bit of payout helps keep people on tour. And we've heard this from other pros as well. Like the difference between last cash versus second to last cash might be like one more event I can add to my schedule. Mm -hmm. But we've also heard from some of the top level players that the payout is totally irrelevant to them. It doesn't matter at all. We see like Paul is just donating all of his winnings, for example. I'm curious for your kind of assessment, like where in the FPO field do you feel like that cutoff happens between I only really care about my contract to I have to care about every payoff. Like if you had to kind of put a slider on the field. It's obviously a guess and personal opinion. And I don't want to like offend anyone who's uh, listening, but I would guess I would have said the top three FPO, but maybe, maybe the top five or 10 are not worrying. Uh, and then the rest are very much worrying at every moment, largely. You know, there's still, there's, there's, like I said, a lot more guaranteed money. There's a lot more ways to make money on the road, but there are still not that many of us, us being FPO players on the road who are not doing other things besides just disc golf to make enough money to survive on the road. You know, not to say that other, like the top women aren't doing plenty of other, you know, important stuff 
for disc golf and not that they're not busy with their own things, but likely the things that they're doing is not just to, you know, fill their tanks with gas, right? There's a difference. And then, well, I don't know, you were saying for the men, them, I'm not sure, you know, but there's a lot more million dollar contracts for the men. And even the women, you know, all the only public ones we know are Kristen's, which I think is the same as Kona's, which is half a million Mm -hmm. over four years. Though I'm sure that'll go up, especially for Kristen. And we don't know pages, right? Right. But even that's like a huge difference. Like that's, that's good money. I think most people would be happy to make it, but it's not a million dollars a year, right? Absolutely. It's the pay is very interesting in disc golf right now. Yeah. I remember when Haley King won the tour championship and said, now I don't have to work at the pizza joint this off season. I can just focus on disc golf. So. Right. I work at REI every off season. You know, a lot of people are are doing that. Uh, and yeah, Haley, like that was a life changing amount of money, like I said, or Nathan Queen pay when he won, he was able to like pay off his trailer, I think that he got to, to Torin and he was riding around in a real junker RV before that. So, you know, for some people just making it to the Pro Tour championships by itself, I mean, you're guaranteed a couple thousand dollars, even if you just make it. And even that is worth it. Absolutely. Let's talk about one of your side gigs, then your commentating gig and what you've seen over on that side. So you've been seeing Kristen play a lot because she was on 83% of potential lead cards this year, which is the most we've seen since last season when she was on uh, 91% of potential lead cards. So what, from your perspective on the commentary side, do you see her doing differently that's leading to the success that we've seen from her? Well, I hope people (laughs) don't get too bored of this because Madison and I say this on Jomez all the time, but Kristen is just the most consistent disc golfer I think we've ever seen. Except, I mean, maybe Paul McBeth um, back when in his most dominant season, which was 15, I think. Yeah. Uh, But she just, she does the thing that everyone says they want to do or try to do. And that's take things one shot at a time. She does not get flustered if she makes a mistake. Um, She doesn't get baited if a competitor does something amazing. Sometimes people are like, well, I can take that line or, you know, I can, I I got to birdie this one because she's going to birdie this one. Like we've seen her lay up for par if she needs to. Like she just plays her own game just from... From my perspective, she just has nerves of steel, (laughs) even though she talks about getting nervous. uh, She doesn't get shaken and she almost never makes mistakes. But then when she does, it doesn't seem to matter to her. She just moves on so quickly. So put that on top of all of the skills that she has, which is all of them. She can do everything really well. uh, And that's why she pretty much wins them all right now. There's an irony that we have Kristen dominating the field seemingly, but then at the same time, we have this huge increase in the level of parity. This season, we saw eight unique winners, nine if you count throw pink, that's elite in majors. That's the most of any season. 22 podium finishers at those events and 36 different players making lead card. That's all the most of any season. There are seven more winners that won on the Silver Series. So we're just seeing this level of talent rise. What are you seeing both on the field and in the commentary booth that is leading to all of these different players performing so well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We talked about some of it already, right? Money. (laughs) You always got to follow the money. Like when I started, no one, not even MPO, made actual money. It was like a combination of wholesale credit where, and then you would just, you know, sling discs, you know, getting your tournaments paid for, and then maybe your name on a disc though, that didn't happen for women until I don't remember the year, but 
fairly recently. I think Paige, maybe Valerie actually was the first uh, Jenkins to get her name on a disc. But anyway, there's more money even for kind of mid to lower level professionals to be able to tour uh, and focus on disc golf. And then also the coverage has improved greatly from back in the day. Sometimes Terry Miller, who I love, I'm a big fan of, hardworking guy, so friendly. We all love Terry. He sometimes though he wasn't able to film entire rounds. He would just be running around by himself with one camera, <laughs> you know, trying to film part of an FPO round and then commentating on it later um, because he had so many other things to do as well. And I think at that time he was kind of the only one who cared. I and mean, he helped kind of kickstart more women's coverage, right? GK Pro came along um, and that's kind of, so I started with Terry doing commentary. And that was when, again, he stepped up his game and started to film entire rounds and have the graphics and have more of what we're used to today. But then GK Pro had more people to do it. The Disc Golf Network started and that was like pretty disastrous to start. I think everybody remembers <laughs> the, the sheet right in the booth and all the technical <laughs> issues and the camera people who weren't necessarily trained. But look at it now. I mean, it's so professional, both live and post-produce. And it's pretty amazing what the Disc Golf Pro Tour is able to do, especially with how few staff they have. Like they really put out an unbelievable product. And then on the post-produce side, we've seen, yeah, Terry Miller, the disc golf guy, to GK Pro, who did FPO for several years, and they were fantastic to work with. They're still doing great stuff with OTB skins and are really a, a great part of disc golf coverage and entertainment. Uh, so, you know, go support them as well. And then now um, with FPO moving to Jomez, who I think is unarguably the most premier post-produced coverage. Like it's not even a statement to say that, right? It just kind of feels like we are focusing on FPO coverage in the same way that we are for MPO. And if you're like a little girl watching and you're like, wow, look at the women do stuff. We're having people start younger and younger. We saw Eliezra, how do you say her last name? Riddling, I think, um, in Throw Pink. Who's, she's 16 and she eagled a hole. No one's ever eagled. She finished... <laughs> You know, in the top eight, I believe, and we're going to see more and more of that. The coverage has, I think, generated interest. We're seeing more people, more women convert from like ultimate Frisbee. I can't really run anymore. I'm done with that sport. Oh, look at this, this disc golf thing. I could do this. You know, that's where we're getting Ella Hansen or Allie Smith, people who started an ultimate. So there's just so many factors that are just creating more opportunities and visibility for women in disc golf. How has the skill set of the field changed over the last couple of years? <laughs> There's so many different things, but immediate one that I thought of was like, you didn't have to have a forehand <laughs> before. And I think that was true on the men's side too. You could get away with just having a backhand. Uh, but mostly, yeah, you just, you have to have all of the skills now. And before it was okay if you just had a few, but you need a backhand, you need a usable forehand, you need to be able to putt well, you need to have, you know, a calm under pressure. That all sounds really obvious, but you know, there are very few people like Sarah Hokum largely only throwing forehands, though she has a backhand now, or James Conrad on the men's side only throwing backhands. There are very few people that kind of just have that, I don't know, don't have at least a usable skill in the set of skills that you need. You know what I'm saying? Like you just have to have it all. And um, I think that sometimes people complain about, oh, women, the women make too many unforced errors and they're less fun to watch because if you look at the MPO, they have to be essentially perfect or beyond perfect and do things we've never seen before to win. And that's so cool. And I do think the women will get there, but also we have, you know, half to maybe a third the field size, depending on the event, and less women able to play for as long. 
So just give us a little bit more time because we are seeing people do unbelievable things already uh, and give it a few more years, you know? I think that's a great point too, because it leads right into like, are we putting the women on the right courses to really highlight what they can do and to make it so when we watch their play, we understand that it's amazing. And so, you know, you've been around you for so long now. So talk to me a little bit about how you've seen the evolution of the courses changing. Cause we used to kind of not care about doing anything for the women sort of at all mm-hmm. to, to where we are and how you feel like that's lining up with what we're seeing from the skill set and, and if you feel like there's still a kind of a bridge we need to gap there, like what you think that is. Sure. Yeah. When I started, we played the MPOT pads, period, pretty much. And then, then when they started doing FPO ones, it was like just for a couple of holes, like maybe you'd have two, right? And now we get our own courses designed for us every time, though the argument is there that maybe it's designed more for the MPO and then kind of modified for the FPO and that maybe there's not enough women helping make those decisions. And th- those are just growing pains. Like, obviously, it, things are a lot better and more interesting to watch. But when we were playing the men's tee pads, it just wasn't that fun to watch because there were a lot of tr- like tweener holes, right? It's just a par three that no one's ever going to get. That's the worst thing you could ever watch in disc golf. Like, yeah, okay, great. A drive, a layup, and everybody parred. It's it's awful. Uh, and we have moved away from that. And then the ratings have gone up because we're rated against each other and we used to be rated against the MPO. Um, and that's why we're seeing Kristen Tatar, what is she at, 999? She's so close to breaking 1,000. And it's, be, yeah, it's because, you know, she's the best right now against all the other women and not just the men. So I think there's definitely a struggle with course design from a coverage standpoint, right? That's why there's such an argument right now of we love wooded golf and that is the most fun to play and what I would say most pros like to play. It's the most interesting, but it's the hardest to film. It's really hard to spectate in the woods. If you're going to go buy a, you know, a weekend pass and go watch people and you're just seeing trees and you can't really see anything, it's not as enjoyable. But then, you know, the big open courses are kind of boring. You know, that's my personal opinion. There's just less obstacles. So there's an interesting, I don't know, we're at a really interesting juncture to see where our sport goes. And they're trying to make wooded courses like Northwoods. They cleared out a ton of area this past year to create just spectator areas. And that was like the first time I've seen so much work, not just to create a fairway, but to create an area where people could watch, right? So I don't know how things will go in the future. I mean, that's up in the air for both MPO and FPO, what kind of courses we will be playing. My personal theory of what I think needs to happen at pretty much every event is that we run it like something like Ledgestone where we have a dedicated FPO course. Um, that's probably the most scorable. We have a dedicated MPO course and we share a course because right now the FPO field is often still limited and capped. Uh, and we just can't have that if we want the field to keep growing and we need it to be the same size as the men's. And that's impossible for sharing one course. Absolutely. And that contributes to that payout too, you know, like the mm-hmm, more women right. come in, the deeper that pot of money becomes that you can be doling out yeah. to those players. Oh, That's definitely true. And I wanted to give a huge shout out to U.S. Women's this year. The course that we played was designed for us, specifically put in the ground for us. And just it was both challenging and scorable. And the field was huge. It was I think it was 100, just under 100. And so it was the payout was great. And it was like as a 
mid-level pro, it was really easy to cash for me. And that was fantastic. And then a lot of other people got a taste of what it was like to play professionally. And I would just love to keep moving in that direction. It was awesome. 100% agree on all of that. (laughs) With these larger field sizes, more competition rising up, we saw for only the second time in history, a chase card winner mm-hmm. on the top stage in FPO with Holland Hanley taking down Throw Pink from the chase card, beating Kristen in a playoff. The only other time we've seen a chase card winner in FPO was Paige Pierce in 2017. That amazing oh. year she had, she came back at Green Mountain Championship final round to win that. Do you think we're going to start seeing more chase card champions in, in FPO? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I don't think it's guaranteed by any means. It's a difficult thing to do. But how many did MPO have this year? Do you remember? They had four chase card winners. Which is unreal to have that many. On MPO, where the scores tend to be even tighter than for FPO, though, we're getting closer to where they're at as far as, you know, the separation and strokes um, are tighter and tighter between each place. But yeah, pretty unbelievable that Holland was able to pull off the win from chase card. And I think it's definitely possible to see more of those. But man, it's just so hard to say. I think several years ago, like, you know, you'd see the top couple women under par and then everyone else over. And now, you know, a stroke or two can be the difference between five places or 10 places. And and now you're starting to talk, you know, some real money too, like hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars, depending on how, you know, where you are in that field. So I think it is both more possible, but more difficult as time goes on. That's a good point, I think. And leads me to wonder what your general predictions are for the 2024 season coming up. Do you think it's going to be another year of Kristen? Who's going to rise up to challenge her? Is it going to be a committee of players or do you see anyone else kind of emerging as potentially a new dominant player? Oh man. Yeah, I do think Kristen's been the one to beat for two years now and she's not showing any signs of slowing down. So I I think it could easily be another year of Kristen, but also as we talked about more unique winners than ever, we had a lot of new women winning silver series events as well. That could potentially win anything. We saw Kat Merch get her first big big win this year. We saw Holland Hanley win. So I think ooh, it should be interesting because Paige is going to be coming back from an injury and she's probably tired of being on the sidelines. So it'll be really fascinating to watch um, what Paige is able to do. But she injured her right ankle, right? Her plant foot. So her mechanics could be different. We don't know what she's going to be running into. Katrina Allen started off strong, but finished the year probably not how she wanted, but she's the hardest worker I think I've ever seen. So who knows what she's doing this offseason. Valerie Manuhano, she went eye to wild. And that was like after her her ankle injury too. I'm sure she's going to be rehabbing. So some familiar names, Haley King up there, the Finns, Henna Evelina. Yeah, but also, yeah, some of those, Own, obviously, Missy, obviously, right? But I don't know if any of those names I mentioned can win as consistently as Kristen is winning. Though maybe if we start putting more money on the line, Missy will win more. (laughs) She's really earned her her nickname. Every time there's extra money in the pot, she tends to win them. But yeah, there's Silver Series winners like Allie Smith, Thayananda, Macy Valadez, Chantel Budinsky, like people we've maybe not seen that many that much of, but have the ability to win, which is harder than it sounds. So I do think it'll be a year of Kristen, but I think I I would be willing to bet a few dollars that we could see even more unique winners 
as well. Great. Well, I assume we'll see you on the course and in the booth again next year. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll definitely be on the course. Uh, I assume I'll be in the booth, but I should probably go work at that at that deal real quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'll be around. I'm not done yet. Good. Great. Well, we look forward to it. And thank you, Erica, for joining today. And we'll see you uh, once the season kicks off. Thank you, guys. We are back. And for the first time this season, Emily, I wish that we had a video podcast and not just audio. You were very animated in, in the background with fist pumps and uh, thumbs up. Seemed like you were really enjoying yourself while we were talking to Erica. Yeah, I think she's a great person to talk to. I think she has such a valuable and unique perspective to offer as someone who's been in the game for a while and someone who gets to watch and discuss players from the commentary angle as well, too. So I just think she has a great point of view on all of the topics we discussed. And I obviously agree with her on a number of points, too. So it's always exciting to get down and sit with her and hear what she has to say. I, I really like the question you asked about the player sponsorship and and who's worried about cashing and and who is is comfortable on tour. And she talked a little about sponsorship dollars, but I, after the interview, I looked up in terms of payouts and and cashing at events. If you took first place in every event in 2023, you would have made around two hundred eighteen thousand dollars. Second place goes down to 152, still fantastic. Third place, 94,000. You start to drop off. Fifth place is, is 51,000. And if you took 10th place at every single event in 2023, you would have made 22,000. So it drops off pretty steeply. And from a payout perspective and a cashing perspective, you really have to place well in order to, to make money. And just for reference, that 10th place of 22,000, that MPO equivalent is about 30th place that you have to finish to make a comparable amount of cash playing every single tour event. Yeah, I thought that was such a fascinating answer that she gave because I was honestly surprised to hear that mm -hmm. it is so many players who have to worry about how they're cashing in order to think about, you know, what they're doing for the rest of the season. And just, you know, looking at the stats around just the caching angle, I, I think it's also pretty obvious why those same players have to care a lot about what they're getting from their sponsorship side. So to be top 10 at every single event on the FPO side, you would have to think you're having a phenomenal season, you know, and to then from that angle only be making $22,000, you probably need to be bringing in money from another source there as well. It was really interesting to hear her response on that and and definitely eye-opening for me. Yeah, and thinking back to our Juliana interview in episode 1, she said that it was um, a financial risk to go on tour and if you look at the 13 events national tour and majors in 2003, she would have made $8,500 for winning all 13 events. And by 2006, which was the last year that she really toured, all 16 events would have netted just $15,000. So we've really come a long way. And you think of Missy Gannon taking $40,000 at the Tour Championship. If you took first place in 
every single event, 19 events in 2018, you wouldn't have made $40,000 and she got it in one event. So the payouts are, again, really just enabling this growth in, in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And and it brings us back to our discussion on the field size angle as well, too. So I think Erica had some really great points about trying to see more events with dedicated courses. Dedicated courses necessarily let you open up the fields a little bit more. Certainly the wait list on the MPO side, you know, never clears. And I think often it will clear on the FPO side, but the fact that we could open up those field sizes more, every player registering for that event is contributing to the money that then goes out to the players who are going to cash at that event. So there's that direct correlation between how big you can make the field and how big you can make the payouts as well too. So I am interested to see how the DGPT continues to handle that issue of wanting to grow the field sizes, wanting to get more players in, not only just to get a chance to play, but also literally to contribute to the payout that those players are getting and the balance that they often have to strike when they're consistently playing on shared courses where we have a limited number of daylight hours to get everyone through. And the other benefit of a dedicated course is having hopefully a course that is suited to the field to where, like you were saying earlier, we can watch FPO players do incredible things. And anyone who thinks that the FPO field is not doing incredible things has not seen a live FPO event. I I had the pleasure of going to the Portland Open this year. I actually caddied for Erica for three rounds. I was standing right behind the tee pad on hole 16 when Maria Oliva aced in round three. And I, I have these memories just burned in my mind of Owen Scoggins hitting a huge circle two putt, fist pumping, running up the hill, just absolutely incredible. And being on courses that are suited to the field allows for those events to happen so that we're not just like Erica said, everybody drives, everybody lays up, everybody taps in next hole. Yeah, absolutely. Because no one is interested in watching that. And and if we're we're watching an event and too often we're thinking there's nothing special, nothing differentiating about what's going on, then we're not watching the right holes. We're not watching you know, the right kind of course for that field. And we're going to run into that issue on the MPO side as well. I think people already are concerned, like, are some of the courses too easy for the men's side? So we really want to be able to provide them both with opportunities to look as outstanding at disc golf as they are. And obviously, care deeply about what they're doing on the FPO side. And I feel like we still have some some catching up to do there, but it's not going to be an issue that we can avoid for the MPO side either. Yep. Well, this season is certainly going to be interesting. We're going to have Kristen coming back, looking to continue her dominance. Paige Pierce coming back from injury. She's uh, still recovering, but you know she's going to be out there fighting. And then a whole host of players who are are hungry for wins. So I'm really excited for this season to kick off here in a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm sure you are too. Yeah, I, I am super excited as both a spectator and a player. I can't wait for this year. Honestly, I have no idea what we're going to see. And I'm just excited to watch it all play out. Well, 
Next week on the stat line, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the MPO division, talk about Calvin Heimberg and his incredible play in 2023. And we'll sit down with Ricky Waisaki to talk about the value of consistency on the Pro Tour. That's next week here on the Statmando Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.